0: Frank, candid, and straight to the point. This is The Truth of the Afternoon with Dr. Ken Harris. Sponsored by Concordia University on 1017 The Truth and The Truth app. Now, he's the mayor of
1: the city of Milwaukee. He's a young man. Give him a chance. I only complain about things that I care about. What I want you to do is pretend like I'm in St. Louis. And all I'm asking the mayor and the county Council president and the county Council show me.
0: You're listening to Concordia University, Wisconsin's free Enterprise Center Economics, Politics, and Philosophy on the Bluff Speaker Series. Our guests are Dr. Rachel Ferguson, Assistant Dean in the College of Business, Concordia University, Chicago, and author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Mr. Jason Fields, President of Madison Regional Economic Partnership, and Dr. Van Mobley, Professor of Economics and History at Concordia University, Wisconsin. And now, live from the Robert W. Plaster Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Wisconsin, your host, Dr. Ken Harris.
1: We're back at Concordia University, Wisconsin. I don't even know where to begin, so I'm just going to jump to the talk and text line. If you have anything, 833-212-1017 is the number. Uh, Talking text line, Craig S. said, "Hotep, Dr. Ken, I believe it is inaccurate that black folks want it in on the privileges of citizenship. How about the promise and the guarantees that claim all men are created equal and, entitlement and entitled to the rights and privileges predicated on the fact that black folks were and are citizens, the will to apply the rule of law fairly and impartially without implicit bias, which is supposed to be illegal also?
2: Yeah, so my initial take on this is that we need to actually stop for a moment and ask ourselves, particularly when it brings up rule of law, I think of the criminal justice system, right? right? right. And so we need to ask ourselves, how did we get into the situation we're in right now?
1: And could you explain what situation we're in
2: right now? A situation of a mass incarceration crisis, right? Okay. We are in crisis. So the United States incarcerates a higher percentage of our population than any country on wow. record. Now, North Korea probably incarcerates more, but they don't publish there's their numbers. But does more crime
1: occur in America than other
2: we, we do have some higher crime. We are a more okay. violent society, for instance, than Correct. our European counterparts. Right. Um, but I do not think that it rises to the level of our incarceration rates. And here's why I know that. Because crime went up in the 70s, and it kept going up until the mid-90s, and incarceration went up with it. Okay, but in the mid 90s, crime started plummeting, and everybody argues about why. We don't know if it's a demographic thing or whatever, right? So I'll leave that to the experts. But crime begins to plummet, but incarceration just keeps going up, which means that there's some kind of internal logic of the criminal justice bureaucracy that had taken hold and was now no longer incarcerating people in a way that had to do with safety, right? It was starting to be just the the incredible power of the prosecutor right the drug war run rampant militarization of police right a lot of things the, the rise of swat a lot of things that happened you know slowly over time that happened in the 90s and in and, and moments like that or after the uh terror attack right we started handing some of this stuff to our to our police officers and so what we end up getting is a situation that affects all americans it disparately affects black Americans, because black Americans are overrepresented under the poverty line. So they are sometimes in highly isolated, economically isolated communities that lead to having high crime.
1: But that's in percentages, not in actual numbers.
2: Exactly. And okay. I always make this point. I actually stop in the book and say, let's stop for a moment and notice that the majority of black Americans are middle class. That 20% of black Americans are below the poverty line, but 10% of white Americans are below the poverty line, and we've got six times as many people.
1: And that's 23 million people versus 8 million.
2: Exactly. So there are way more poor white people than poor black people. And we want to acknowledge, and I think that was a little bit of my discomfort with the first hour, is that there was so much emphasis on the historical oppression, which is real and important to acknowledge, but you also have to acknowledge the incredible progress. Right. There Absolutely. are many Absolutely. black Americans doing very, very well yeah. today. Right. And so when we start focusing on criminal justice, drug war, things like that, we have to know, number one, we're focusing on a particular subsection of the black community. But it's also affecting Latinos and whites. Right. These other people are also going to jail. They're also getting assaulted by by police sometimes unfairly.
3: Right. And I would also say, you know, one of the things that we talked about is whenever, you know, little local communities really get going and, and, you know, that happens in depressed white communities as well. A lot of times it seems to be that something does take the air out of them. A lot of times it's when the po- that's because when they're being successful, the politicians show up. They want to get a cut of it. You know, they want to get some credit for what they never did. And um, that's a class thing, which we talked about uh, mm-hmm. earlier. You know, this, there's a lot of the class. um uh, confusion or class, you know, class, um, I don't even know what the
2: word Kind I of class it. pride, right? Yeah. Like, so you have one group who sort of doesn't care about this, this subgroup, right. That they consider to be below the level of notice until
3: they pop their head up a little bit and then they all swarm in or they mash it down. Right. Would you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: exactly. So let's take a whole different look at this hour, right? What we're really talking about is classism. That's always been there. In my estimation, we've pretended that it was racism when, in fact, it really is class. I have, avoiding the 60s and maybe early 70s, I have, I have not heard of a lot of people, black, moving to the suburbs and having issues.
2: Right. They just move to the suburbs. It's fine.
1: Because they believe if you can afford the house and take care of your lawn and water your grass, hey, God bless you. They right. will leave you alone. It's only when they think you're not that you have an issue. The weird part about it is I've seen them turn on more, and I guess because black people are so hypersensitive to always wanting to fit in in a suburb that when poor white people move to a suburb, they'll run out. And so how do we deal with that elephant in the room that, that really some of what we've been arguing has gone beyond race, and it literally is class. I, I, I bring up Isabel Wilkerson and her book, Cast, where now we've started to break down, literally, all of our politics have to do with money. Everything that politicians give us, they used to give us money for a house, now they just give us money. Like, everything has come down to class, and so, what are your thoughts on that, Jason? You know, I, I
4: think it, it 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 goes back to, you know, why the free market and market enterprises are important for people of color and African Americans, because it seems to be that one thing that transcends, you know, this classism that, that we struggle with, you know, um, because when you get to a certain point, let's be candid, there are certain issues that you don't have to worry about. I mean, it, it, it'd be, I mean, and I think growing Can you up. repeat that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's when you get to a certain point, there are certain things that you don't have to worry about. I mean, I'll use myself, for example, my wife and I moved to, and it's not to say, it's not to just throw out race. Like no, we don't no, have no, no, don't issues. Try to qualify it. Now. No, no, no. I'm just saying it's not, it's not to just say it's only this, right. But the reality is that there we are moving to a point where, yeah, it is a lot of classism yeah. because I, we live in a quite honestly, a well diverse area. Um, not the same problems we have when, when we lived other places, Yeah. <laughs> same diversity, but different class, different level. Mm. And I'm not saying that means people are smarter or better. I'm just saying when you get to certain points, there's just a difference. Um, And it's not always about race. And so I I think when you look at that, how did we get there? It comes back to understanding the empowerment and what empowerment really is to becoming self-sustaining and being able to write a check to your friends, being able to, as JC said, I can't help the poor if I'm one of them. So if you're not poor, you can help more people. And so that, that's where I think when you start looking at market enterprises and business, which I'm very biased about, I think we ought to teach more people of color about this stuff. Those are the things that I think will help empower us. No, it's not just about money, but when you can start building wealth that you can transition or that you can leave behind for future generations, now you're really starting to have an impact. And so those are the things, I think it comes back to this discussion. Why are we talking about marketing business, free market principles when it comes to black folks? Because for whatever reason, at one point we had it, but from a historical point of view, it got taken care of, we addressed that, but what do we do now, right? What do we do now?
2: And I'm gonna get real controversial, you ready? Uh Uh-oh. If we are right that while race remains an issue, a lot of these issues are actually class, and what we want is socioeconomic mobility, Right. right? Why are we spending billions upon billions of dollars on diversity, equity and inclusion training, which the research shows is not effective even in reaching its own goals? Okay, and it's become, frankly, a grift. I'm sorry
4: to say, No, you know, I'll I'll (laughs) I'll 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 co-sign that. And here, here, the reason why I say that. I've said this to my board (laughs) at some point, diversity, equity, inclusion became a buzz phrase. Meaning people forgot that there's work and it just became, first off, you really have to understand diversity. Diversity by the definition means divisive. So there's a way to do this. And what we did was said, diversity, equity, inclusion, everybody needs to have a person of color or a woman and all of this despite, despite qualifications. It just We just threw this word and said, do it. What we didn't do was create an atmosphere or environment or a culture where people felt like they belonged.
1: That's where we missed the mark. And,
2: and we actually see that was, DI right. training makes people feel like they don't belong. Right. It's because got the weirdest outcomes.
1: It simply divides people. It makes me notice that we're different instead of trying to learn about the difference.
2: And I'm thinking, what if we had invested those billions into business people, right? And into some of that socioeconomic mobility. I can't yeah. stand it when I think about the missed opportunities.
3: Uh, well, I got... I got uh, um I, when everybody people have this conversation I'm like you know Ken has a window that looks out on the lake and Van doesn't <laughs> That's true And I see it Ridiculous. every morning I see the sunrise Ridiculous. and the sunset <laughs> Is that fair? Is it fair Ken? Is it fair?
2: I've been here longer than you. That's true. But but let me tell you a story, Ken. I know the. So I have met some of the police officers in Ferguson. Okay, I live ten minutes away. I used to work ten minutes. On the I have other side. as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. passed right through Ferguson, and one of the stories, and I've seen them the way they behave towards community members, which wasn't great either. Okay, so I've observed some of that. But one of the stories they tell is that the DOJ comes in and they start nailing them saying, you need to do all of these trainings. And some of the guys get up and walk out. And the guy says to me, why did they, you want to know why they walked out? Did they walk out because they hated what the guy was saying? He said, no, they walked out because they'd already had all of those trainings. Those trainings hadn't made them necessarily handle things in a more effective way. And that's my point, is that when something doesn't work, stop doing it. Do something else. When we come back, I want to go straight
1: to, because I I said, we have this lineup and we're going to follow these questions and we're going to do all this stuff, and I was pretty sure that would just get thrown out halfway through. Here we are halfway through. It's gone. (laughs) I just want to jump to what... (laughs) What solutions that can bring about the promise in light of the following? I don't wanna start a fight, but. Critical race theory, anti-racism, black conservatives, and reparations. You're listening to Truth in the Afternoon. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Harris. We're live from Concordia University, Wisconsin.
0: You're listening to Concordia University, Wisconsin's free Enterprise Center, Economics, Politics, and Philosophy on the Bluff Speaker Series. Our guests are Dr. Rachel Ferguson, Assistant Dean in the College of Business, Concordia University, Chicago, and author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Mr. Jason Fields, President of Madison Regional Economic Partnership, and Dr. Van Mobley, Professor of Economics and History at Concordia University, Wisconsin. And now, live from the Robert W. Plaster Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Wisconsin, your host, Dr. Ken Harris.
1: Welcome back. We're here at Concordia. You know, I was going to do some opening thing, but I'm going to just let you all finish the conversation we started. Because you mentioned something about capitalism and where it fits in all this. Because the diversity piece is important. And we're doing it wrong, so so where will capitalism fix it? And then I want to jump to Rachel to really tell us how do we get to the solutions in Europe. Yeah,
3: yeah, okay. absolutely. Well, I would say, you know, there's always... Uh, you have to be careful about what you mean when capitalism, when you talk about capitalism. Is it, uh, is it a little black community joining together around a, a local marketplace and really empowering one another and cutting fair deals and enforcing the fair deals, or is it sort of global capitalism exploiting uh, Chinese workers to sell everybody iPhones? And, and you know, that's one of the things that sometimes happens um, that, that sours people on capitalism. And... Um, and and you know and we should that I think that if you if you approach capitalism from that angle it gets you back to the class discussions in some cases that we were having earlier as well. But
4: Van, let me ask you this question, and I'm I know can you want to get to the doctor. Uh, here's some of my issues with some of this stuff. It's like leadership le- or or money. Capitalism inherently takes on the characteristics or the traits of the person using it. So just like leadership, you know it it t- or money money is not good or bad so how do we get to a point where if you mention capitalism all of a sudden it's a bad thing
3: when in fact it's it's not well, that's it. I mean, when in fact capitalism, I mean, it's got if it's got the values of those local markets, I think it's great because it's actually it, everything's added in. Everyone is empowered. Uh, no one is taken advantage of. Everyone is able to participate and, and uh, better themselves in their community, which is what people want to do. But capitalism can also slip into the exploitative variant. And, uh, you know, I'm. Uh, I'm a village president in addition to being and so I I believe in the locals always. I was like, ask the locals what they want. If you want to empower the locals, then you'll get good
2: outcomes. And um, I've got to disagree with you, Van, Okay, (laughs) Uh, because I don't want to ever defend genuine exploitation ever, ever, ever. And Mm -hmm. so my whole idea of free markets is based on individual freedom, right? And the respect for those individual rights. Uh, But what I do want to defend is global markets. And the reason I want to defend global markets is because we have gone in the last 250 years from a situation in which people living under $3 a day uh, account for about 99% of the population, human population, uh, to today, when it accounts for about 8% of the human population. And we now have a human population of 8 billion people. Okay, So we have quintupled uh, or more, right, the human population, and yet they are getting richer and richer and richer people are able to support themselves to get antibiotics to send their kids to school instead of having them break big rocks into smaller rocks or some kind of a job like that all over the world. So I'm not going to be so quick to poo-poo global markets. Okay. I understand that they can have very painful consequences in terms of cultural transition. And I'm not, I'm not trying to ignore that, but I also don't want to ignore the increase in the quality of human life.
3: Well, I would, I would agree with you totally. And then, uh, um, this would maybe get us into a conversation that was a little off base, but um, from what we've talked about race and class, but there, you know, there are, um, there is always the danger of the exploitative nature of capitalism on either a local or a global basis. And I think that's part of the thing, why the Christian message in the Christian church has been so powerful, not only in black communities, but in white communities in reminding people about the inner check. I mean, the best capitalist I've ever known are are some like people that I've known black people white people old old men old women who always say for example the common rule of thumb which is always leave a little on the table for your counterparty now you know don't drive your your trading you know you don't you don't have to maximize your profit every time and those are lessons that are learned in local communities i think mostly or they're inculcated in the institutions that allow for human flourishing. And when that leaves or goes away, then we become Gordon Gecko. We've been doing better in the 1980s. And, and that's not the capitalism that will be successful in the long run or is sustaining.
2: Yeah, and fraud should never be a part of what we do when, we are, when we're operating in markets.
3: Agreed.
1: So listen to this. Agree or disagree and explain yourself regarding this statement by Harold Cruz. Behind the Black Power slogan that the main source of powerlessness for black Americans, that there is no black class of capitalist owners of institutions and economic tools.
3: Yeah. Well, well, I would say, you know, that's one of those things where it may be that the past or a comment like that hasn't come up to with a, with the future or the present. I know that... uh, We've been waiting since 1868.
2: But Cruz made that comment in the 60s. He
3: made it in the
1: 60s. Yeah, so that's not
2: a contemporary claim. It's not. That's right. I mean,
3: um, well, um, I'm just speaking as a little village president. You you guys, we try to attract capital into Thamesville from everywhere. And that includes from, uh, you know... African-Americans who've got it, you know, and that's just part of the, the thing. So, uh, and, right. and, and they do have it. As a matter of fact, I look forward to meeting with some on Monday and I hope that they'll b- drop some porn
2: on <laughs> Yeah, I think we have developed a class mm-hmm. of black capitalists, but I think it, the But we don't
3: run the institutions.
2: Right. And so uh, there's just a, a a time delay, right? So I yeah, think, but this, really? <laughs> I think there are black institutions in the United States that are powerful, but there are, I understand what you're saying. I mean, the white people are the majority culture. But it's it's
1: been 50 years since the mid 60s and now 50 years prior to that, it was the.
2: But what happened in those 50 years? We built the highways. We did. I mean, even after. We built the highways through the black communities that were prosperous. Yes. We're making up for all that destruction now. We're not that far out from when that stuff occurred. I mean, we're, we're not. I know people who lived through it, right? They're still alive. Yeah, so we are not far out from a major, major destruction of black wealth. Don't forget, from 1948 to right. 1966, Correct. black wealth, black poverty, sorry, was cut in half. 89% right. to 41%. Right. I mean, people were rocking and rolling. And in all their the, own communities, it, all yes. black. Right? right? And then we mowed it down. right? OK? So now we've got to rebuild again. And we're not that far out from that destruction.
3: No, I was just listening. Nope.
4: <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's, it's a true statement. I mean, I think when you looking at it from my lens, and typically I'm looking at it from a you know, venture capital, uh, private equity, when you start looking at, um, even if you compare black millionaires in America to black millionaires in Africa, most people don't know they have way more millionaires, billionaires over in Africa than we do here. Correct. And even though when you 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 know how many do we have that actually really control something right i mean you got robert f smith who's the
1: you got oprah and, and they went after Robert F. Smith. Right, on the tax. They thing. didn't go after Oprah because she kept her head down and did whatever they told her to do. That's so, a whole other so discussion. That, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs>
2: that's a whole other discussion. All right. Can I just See. jump in? I'm actually, so I'm, I'm sure you're right about the millionaire claim, but mm-hmm. I've also heard Glenn Lowry talk about the fact that, like, say the Nigerian economy, which is one of the strongest yes, in Africa, that that black Americans are a smaller population, but control something like nine times the amount of wealth or that something like that. Yeah, right? That is and correct. Yeah, right? And so black Americans as consumers have a lot of power right and so the question yes. is how can they transfer that into ownership I agree
4: I think yeah. that, and, and therein lies the issue yet yeah, the consumerism <laughs> is that really power it is if you as you say transfer it
2: grab it and take it <laughs> yeah. if you're
1: allowing me to buy and not selling me Cavassier, that's great Right. But that's not what they're doing,
3: right. right? And The other thing on that is, you know, the 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 power of black cultural figures mm-hmm. in the United States is enormous, yeah, and and you know, way outweighs the uh, if you just look at it in terms of number, you know, percentage of right. the population versus the cultural figures. So I mean, you know, that's something that I think the black community you, you could take pride in, but then recognize it, and and you know, that's it. I think it's you know, I think it's a question
4: where yes, there is there has been progress. But when you look at it, what do, on, on, what's, on what real level of grandiose things can we do, we control, right? Meaning, we, you just now started having black CEOs. I mean, as you said before, we're not that far off from when this stuff never happened. I mean, you had mm-hmm. Kenneth Chenault. I think, at American Family Appointments, retired. Chenault, American Express. But when you start looking at, okay, how much power in the institutions do we have? whether it be government institutions or private institutions, how many people of color, black folks, are the people who can make a decision and have a check cut or written?
1: Well, you only get one. (laughs) Right. Right? You have one in, and then everybody else has to wait. They did it with Barack Obama. Oh, yeah, he's in, so nobody else. You watched it locally, right? You have a black president, so we really didn't have anybody black in politics until he was gone. And right. we see it at
4: the government level. And again, I'm going to just refer oh, to the state. Um, you can't, you, you have just even at a cabinet secretary and I'm not trying to offend or tick anybody off. But even when you look at the cabinet secretaries on down, where are the black leaders who can get a check cut? Correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause I don't need you to be my friend. I, I need you to write a check. <laughs> if we want to empower our community, do it in the ways that will empower the community. You just saying, well, we have a person in in this position, but yet that person doesn't have any authority. It's like an unfunded mandate. I mean, you, you know, it's just, yeah. you're giving somebody a title, but no power.
2: I, I'm going to be super controversial again. Please, Sorry. Shocking. Again. Shocking. I want to add, because I think markets and entrepreneurship are important, but... I do think we have to acknowledge there's kind of, there's proximate causes and non-proximate causes. Mm-hmm. There's a chain of causes. So we're going back and we're looking at these you know, policies that were racist or had terrible racist effects. But I think we have to acknowledge that they caused things that weren't necessarily political in nature. So to give an example, family structure issues, right? And so you have, if you're going to mow down people's neighborhoods and, sh- and, and you know, spread their community far and wide so that they, are no, they can't reconstitute it, you're going to undermine their family structure. Right. If you're going to offer perverse incentives with the welfare state when it comes to the marriage penalty, you're going to undermine family structure. What does that mean? That means you're going to weaken the community. You're going to weaken the ability, particularly young men, I think, to really rise up and be these great leaders. Right. And so I think we need to take into account not just to put emphasis on the marketplace and activity in the marketplace, but put a lot of emphasis on the kind of mentoring and attention Mm -hmm. that we're going to have to pay these young men. And I think on the left, they really condemn you when you talk about that because they think of it as victim blaming but I'm saying no I blame the system for right. causing this problem it's just that now we have this problem right. right we have a lot of kids who don't necessarily have the stability uh, you know that's going to launch them right into a leadership position and so those kids need to be mentored somebody's going to have to step in and make that happen
1: 833 is the talking text line. when we come back we're going to finally get to because I got to make Van and Rachel and Jason, stop talking long enough to, to actually argue about um, some fire topics I'm going to throw out. Critical race theory, anti-racism, black conservatives, which was kind of weird because they put cults around it, and <laughs> <laughs> reparations. You're listening to Truth in the Afternoon. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Harris. We're live from Concordia University, Wisconsin.
0: You're listening to Concordia University, Wisconsin's free Enterprise Center Economics, Politics, and Philosophy on the Bluff Speaker Series. Our guests are Dr. Rachel Ferguson, Assistant Dean in the College of Business, Concordia University, Chicago, and author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Mr. Jason Fields, President of Madison Regional Economic Partnership, and Dr. Van Mobley, Professor of Economics and History at Concordia University, Wisconsin. And now, live from the Robert W. Plaster Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Wisconsin, your host, Dr. Ken Harris.
1: All right, so I'm going to just jump into it because I know Rachel is ready. (laughs) We've been talking about this for at least three hours and some change. Critical race theory. Yeah. Help me out.
2: Well... I mean, first of all, critical race theory is a loose collection of scholars. Um, you know, we, we've, we're throwing this term around as though you can define it really, really well. Well, we got critical law theory and yeah, critical, critical legal theory, theory and, and right. it's related to that. I will say that critical race theory, obviously, I can't agree with it because it either is extremely suspicious of or outright rejects liberalism, and so it it, it thinks that liberalism itself, the liberal system which treats citizens neutrally or is supposed to treat citizens neutrally, is a bad idea. I think it's the best idea. We we've ever had, and that what we need to do is get closer and closer and closer to that ideal. Uh, So I don't agree with it, but I want to call out my conservative friends here for a minute. Okay. Part of the reason that critical race theory has had so much cachet recently is because they went looking in our legal history for cases of oppression of black people and exclusion, and they found it, right? They found it. And so because conservatives didn't have their own account of what had happened uh and just were kind of brushing it under the rug they're now having their lunches eaten by the crt you know, theorists, right? right, who can actually point out this history. I would like to say that the classical liberals did know about this history all along and called it out, right? People like right. the two founders of the NAACP that were classical liberal, people like Frederick Douglass, people like Rose Wilder Lane right. at, at the Pittsburgh Courier, um, George Shiler, Zora Neale Hurston, right? You have all of these great figures who uh, really questioned that dichotomy, but I just want to say that's part of the reason that it's so powerful is that nobody offered uh, an explanation of that history that right. wasn't a pure um, negative, right, on the American project. But it's about the story you tell and how you tell the yep. story.
1: Yep. And so if you want to look at how critical race theory actually works, I have looked at the legal case of Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. It was about the stories they told in court that brought that together for the justices to go, let's connect the dots. But for some reason, it you have to then trust the person telling the story to tell an accurate story, one that's true, and that is the proper narrative. I was right. about to say fits the narrative, but that goes kind of against the whole
2: And there's plan. one other complaint I have against the critical race theorists, okay. which is part of their story, right. is this is this idea of intersectionality. That's an important oh. thing that's, that's embraced. <laughs> yeah. And so you're looking at all these different oppressed groups, and it frankly kind of offends me. Like, I feel like the black American experience is its own thing, right? Well, that's why we're not people of color. Exactly. Why are we using these terms? That's why I called it black liberation. But but then you have the group of one
1: group of white people, and then I can take 18 different groups, right? And I can say people of color and include everybody, which kind of is demeaning.
2: Hmm. Right. Exactly. And so I don't like the way that other groups are sort of piggybacking on the experience of black Americans saying, well, we're the new civil rights. We're the new civil rights. It's like, do your own thing. Number one. <laughs> and number two, black Americans <laughs> don't necessarily support these groups. No, they don't. Right? They don't. If you're, if you're a, a theologically conservative person in a black church, right. you're not pro trans. I'm right. sorry, but you're not. Right. And so asking you to do that is actually asking you to turn your back on the tradition right. that got you through the last 150 years. Give me a right. break.
1: Yeah. Can't argue that. Anybody else want to jump in or are we going to leave her out there on the boat? By no, ourselves? I mean,
4: I, no, I think, I think when I looked at it at one, I think it's become so, so much of a political tennis ball that people are using. Um, you know, regardless, I, I've come to the point where regardless of where you're at on critical race theory, if you even know what it means, um, the concern I have when it comes to education is, again if you remove critical race theory out of the the discussion one is it not necessarily an additional distraction but then when i see more movement in the you know as a political football you know when we want to start taking away american history which includes all the things that occurred under slavery uh and then quite honestly when i hear the sort of the rationale well we don't want this to offend the kids well, if you were a black kid growing up in the American education system, being told every year your your ancestors were slaves and all this, there's almost a immediate anger because where was this same concern when I was a child coming up about education? Now we don't want to talk about the truth. Mm-hmm. Now we want to hide the truth about what happened yeah. so people don't feel bad. That, that doesn't make any sense
0: to me.
2: Yeah, there's a conservative reactionaryism, yeah. I think, where instead of thinking, what is the appropriate way to approach this? Right. It's the left is doing that. Right. So we're going to do the exact opposite. Right. right. And that's not the answer. You've, you've got to just stick to the truth. You've got to stick to reality.
3: Van, I liked. Uh, I I thought this was another good part of your book, so I agreed with you. Generally speaking, on the print, that's I said, I, like, I think you did a good job on that one.
1: <laughs> when, we come, when we come back, I, I think that was an easy way out. I, when we come back, we'll talk about anti-racism. Sounds like a certain author you were um, channeling when you talked about that, named Mister Coates. You're listening to Truth in yeah. the Afternoon. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Harris. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Concordia University, Wisconsin's free Enterprise Center Economics, Politics, and Philosophy on the Bluff Speaker Series. Our guests are Dr. Rachel Ferguson, Assistant Dean in the College of Business, Concordia University, Chicago, and author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Mr. Jason Fields, President of Madison Regional Economic Partnership, and Dr. Van Mobley, Professor of Economics and History at Concordia University, Wisconsin. And now, live from the Robert W. Plaster Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Wisconsin, your host, Dr. Ken Harris.
1: All right, we're going to try to get through this in about five or six minutes. I know that's technically impossible, just using math with these three people. So we're going to do it anyway. Van, thoughts on anti-racism?
3: I'm not really – I'm not really – could you give me a definition?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I'm with you, man. <laughs> what is, no,
2: I think the basic idea of anti-racism is that we've had racist policy in the past. It's caused certain kinds of inequalities. And so the only way to fix it now is not just getting rid of those racist policies, but having positively anti-racist policies. Right. right? Things
1: that'll stop you from being racist.
2: Yeah. And so uh, you know, my I would go back to the point I was making earlier about proximate and non-proximate causes, right? And I would say look, yes, it's true. We've had racist policies that have caused all kinds of problems but we have to deal with the problems we have now just having anti racist policies you know that Frankly, a lot of our problems aren't policy-related. Some of them are right. related to other things.
1: They're heart-related, really. Yeah,
2: yeah, or mm. culture-related or whatever it might be. Now, I have policies in the book, right? Pro-school yeah. choice. Amen to that, right? And I've got economic freedom, mm-hmm. and I've got criminal justice reform. But then we've got to talk about stuff like neighborhood stabilization and even transitional justice, which is doing justice to our past. And so I think like people, thinkers like Kendi, that's the mistake they make. Yeah. Um, and he's, he goes so far as to say we should have a whole... like. <laughs> (laughs) Committee of people that that tests every law for whether it'll cause more inequality and then, you know, decide. And I'm thinking, that's not constitutional. (laughs) You can't do that in the American system. Well, wait a minute. We can
1: tell the truth, all right? We can use soothsayers and people that can... Ouija boards. And, yeah, Ouija boards, and we can just figure out whether or not you're racist, right? The Ouija board will just tell us,
2: right? And that,
1: that's I think, not working too well. I think
2: though. I understand where Kendi's coming from right. in the sense where he's right. saying... In the past, it wasn't enough to, to just not be racist, right? You needed to fight. You needed to care, right? You right. needed to actually fight for the community and care for their needs. I just think that his idea of what it takes to fight for the black community it's is totally wrong. Okay. Yeah, I think he's really off base.
1: So speaking of totally wrong, black conservatives, why quotes around conservatives? Or just what is your comment about black conservatives?
2: Yeah, the reason I put quotes around it is just because a lot of the people I discuss um, aren't necessarily conservative. So I think Walter Williams and, and Thomas Sowell are really libertarians. Correct. Um, Glenn Lowry has flip-flopped Economist. his whole life. Right? right. He's a conservative right now, but he's been less conservative in the past. But isn't that everybody? He's, he's very honest about that. But isn't that everybody? Well, he's done it three or four times. That's a little unusual. And uh, publicly. <laughs> yeah. And John McWhorter calls himself a cranky liberal, and he's the guy who just wrote woke racism. <laughs> Right. You know and so I just think sometimes We shouldn't assume but I think there's but Wait some... wait wait does writing woke racism Make you a conservative or does it make No that's you my point he's just because he's Just because he is Criticizing wokeism doesn't Make him a conservative he's, he's okay. not a conservative On policy he's just not okay. You know and, and the other thing I'd say is there's Some fascinating black conservatives Out there the black conscious conservatives they Sometimes use the term right. who are really Interested in talking about the way that Progressivism and progressive policy have undermined Black Americans, right. and they want to talk about the history because that's their chance to show that it's the other side that did the damage, and that investing in our families and our communities and our businesses is the way to go.
1: Okay, Jason, I'm gonna toss you a softball. Yeah, you know, hit, hit, hit it back lightly. Reparations.
4: You know, I yeah, I don't. I think we should find a way to do it. I mean, I guess from my point of view, when you look at the history. And reparations, meaning repair something that was destroyed, not a handout, right? Not a give back. I think you have to change the mindset of what it is. It's to repair something that has been done for years. Mm. Now, how you do that? uh, I think that's where first we got to get to that point. Do we agree that it should be done? Do we do we believe that we need to repair the historical and even now what led up to black community being in some of these situations, I think the answer to that is yes. How do we do that? I I, I don't know how we do that yet, but I do agree. I, I do. I'm yes on it.
1: My suggestion for it is this. We can start with school loans and then everybody gets, you know, starts screaming and hollering. Oh my God, we can't do that. I said, well, let's do it like this. Let's repay the school loans whatever first of all we're putting about what 1.2 1.4 trillion dollars back into the economy that people can then spend but what i would do is force you right have the government use of government to take out half of what your payment is you have to put it into a 401k or a 403b along with taking a class to learn how to invest in generational wealth otherwise you're just throwing money in and i know i can see from rachel's face that she's about to explode and not implode.
2: I don't like micromanaging people. I, I, well, at
1: some point you have to micromanage them to teach them to do better.
2: But the government doesn't have to do that. Well, I, I don't, don't think so. Do so. So so the, the idea that I had for reparations in the book which okay. I base on Jim Crow, not slavery, right? This is within human, within, right. within a life's memory. Um, the idea that I had in the book was really to figure out how to capitalize business. And since the book, actually, I've learned more about the ways that small banks and community <sighs> banks have been shut down and how we can get those back up because they've got the local information right. to know who, who to and best in right so I'd rather do it that way and then say the other area we need to do reparations is the white church the white church can do it by doing the neighborhood stabilization work right in other words there has been so much damage between the black church and the white church because of the white church's not just participation in but leadership of the oppression of black people and I think that if they put a ton of emphasis on doing non-toxic work in uh, neighborhoods that are really destabilized, we would have a lot of mentors, a lot of resources, a lot of economic networks that would be brought in. And I'm not excluding the black, middle class black church from doing that either. Right. But I'm just saying that attitude of repair, I think, could be really important. Professor, <laughs> black
1: people are tired of white people coming in right as <laughs> saviors to fix stuff that we can fix ourselves, making the assumption that we can't fix it.
2: No, I think that's right. You don't want to get into white saviorism, and that's why. But that's what happens with the white church if they come in and do that. That's why I want them to go to Brian Fickert's Chalmers Center and be trained in how How to do helping that doesn't hurt. How about you give
1: us the facility and the utility to do it, and then we do it ourselves?
2: Okay. That's great.
1: Okay, so she said yes. So 20 years from now, we're going to find this
2: this, this,
0: this.
1: this is all over. We're still in our neighborhood. What are we doing?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, and, I,
1: it'll be like NGOs down in Haiti and, you know, they'll just move in and take over. And I
2: hate that stuff. Right. So I agree with you yeah. with your critique of that. And that's the fear. So whatever it has to be, it has to avoid that. Everybody watch the documentary Poverty Inc. If you, have if you already. haven't already, you, you can, have can see what he's talking about. It. Yeah. yeah it's so good. The,
4: the distress and harm that that does to a community using that NGO example, I agree with you, Ken. If if you if, I know the, the the thought process is there but I do think there is a there's a concern that one what happens if you if that if that if it if the scenario plays out that way you give it to the white white churches they come in then does it stay genuine and authentic yeah and how does it not it it have to be some real trust building <laughs> exercises done <laughs> first yeah
1: yeah all right final thoughts About 30 seconds, Van?
3: I think it's been a great discussion. I've really enjoyed it and um, learned a lot. So, you know, it's always better if you keep your mouth shut and just listen. (laughs) I had to talk every now and then, but I really did. I think for for getting me on the panel. And, Rachel, I thought it was a great book. You know, there were some things that uh, I would disagree with, but a lot that I agree in there. And I think it's well done, well researched, and it was a pleasure to look at and read. Thank, thank you so much. Well, thank you. All right. Jason. Same here. I, uh, I love the,
4: I didn't get a chance to read all of it, but a lot of the excerpts and I had a few aha moments. I mean, I really did enjoy uh, the historical perspective and really liked the Booker T. Washington narrative that you, uh,
2: okay, <laughs> you guys can arm wrestle over that, right. one.
4: <laughs> but it was a good, good book. Rachel, your thoughts?
2: I just want to leave everybody with the hope that we can do justice to our past, tell the truth about our painful racial history, and maintain hope for the future with the American project as it actually exists, that that the Constitution that we've been given, I think, is real genius. And it's just a matter, as Frederick Douglass said, of having courage enough and honor enough to live up to our Constitution. Is the promise real? That's my argument. I think it is. It's I'm real. A, I'm a believer.
1: What about you, Jason? Is it? You
4: know, you can show me better than you can tell me. Mm. <laughs> so show me more.
1: All right. You're listening to Truth in the Afternoon. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Harris. And we want to thank our panel, Rachel Ferguson, Jason Fields, and Van Mobley. We're here live at the Robert W. Plaster Free Enterprise Center. want to thank Scott Niederjohn for having 101.7 The Truth here and our audience here today. Tori Lowe show is up next. I'll see you in about two days or so. I'm out.